0: Hi guys, and welcome to a new episode of Tapirouge. I'm your host, Guillaume Cauchois, and my guest today is the success story we all dream of. A true started from the bottom, now we're here kind of thing. It is my honor to introduce the Broadway and Cirque du Soleil legend, David Shiner. David, welcome to Tapirouge, and thank you for being with us today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's, a, it's really an honor for me to have you here. I'm really happy. Oh, thanks. David, you are um, like a legend of Broadway, an incredible clown, and you also have a very strong ties with Cirque du Soleil. Yes. So would you mind taking us on your Cirque du Soleil journey? How did it start and... Um,
1: well, whew, it's a long story, I guess. Um, um, 1985, I um, I was living in L.A. for a short time. And Cirque du Soleil had just started. And um, mm-hmm. Gila Liberté invited me out. I think they were in Toronto
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, to look at the show and whatnot. And um, it was really nice meeting everybody. What a great group. Those were, you know, it was the yeah it was just starting it was just starting quite amazing but i had other things on my mind at that time other things i wanted to do and i was living in munich and i had just met my my wife and so um i wasn't really in the mood to be going anywhere um and i think shortly after that i returned back to germany but then uh gilles sainte-croix contacted me again um it must have been 1988 or Late in 1988, um, they had just—I think—they had been doing Cirque Reinventé for two years up until mm-hmm. then. Yeah, I think they had their big, their big—I I could be wrong—but I think they had their big hit or their big push into, you know, um, stardom, if you will, when they were in Los Angeles. That must have been yes, 1987. 1987 yes. I think that. Was. Yeah. So Jill um, actually came to Munich. Um, he spent a couple nights with us here in Munich. And, um, it's really funny because you know, I was kind of hemming in the I'm not sure I wanted to do it. And, um, later on, after I had signed the contract, Jill, I was talking to Jill and he said, well, you know, David, you know how I got through, you know, how I got you really. He said, I got you through your wife, Michaela.
2: <laughs> you know,
1: he really charmed her. And, oh yeah. Um, <laughs> and he did it work. Yeah, well, he's a very charming guy. And um yeah, it did work. It did work. <laughs> it was a huge step for me. Um because I you know, I've been working on the streets in uh Paris for three years. And then I got uh, my first professional job was with Circus Roncalli. That was 1984. Mm-hmm. And um then I just did one season there, 1985. What was it, 1986, 1986, I think. I was working with uh, Rene Bazinet.
0: Yeah, you
1: know, we had a two-man show, which was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And I think we worked for about a year together. And '87, I did Circus Knie.
0: Just for our listener, Rene Bazinet is also an extremely iconic clown who also played a huge part in Cirque du Soleil.
1: Yeah, he's he's a great artist. You know, he's a great artist, and uh, we're very close friends. Yeah, and then, you know, 1988, um, yeah, I signed a contract, and I think I went over to Montreal in 1989, it must have been March or April, I can't recall, and so we started rehearsing Nouvelle Experience, mm. and, uh, you know, in those days, we were all kind of, you know, young and had tons of energy and excited, and we wanted to do great creations, and um, we all had dreams that we wanted to realize. And, um, it was, I think the most, I don't know, it was, was the most fun I ever had in, in terms of a creative experience, being with a lot of really wonderful artists.
0: Oh, okay. And,
1: uh, of course, Jill and, and, and Guy and, um, um, everyone there at Cirque, they were all just really supportive and, um, Mm. yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun.
0: How long did you perform in Nouvelle Experience for?
1: Well, it's interesting because they wanted me to perform two years, but my wife said no. You can only do one year.
0: You know, so your wife let you go, but under certain conditions.
1: That's one year, you know, and that's what I said to Jill. I said, "Jill, I'm only doing one year." He said, "Okay." And um, yeah, that creative process was, you know, a lot of fun, and I was, you know, I guess I did really well in that show. Um, It was really that show that catapulted me um, Mm -hmm. into. I don't know, clown stardom or whatever the mm-hmm. heck you want to call it. it. It was a wonderful show, and Gilles and Guy and everyone who was all part of that team, um, they were just uh, fantastic. You know, mm-hmm. It was a beautiful experience. And then, of course, you know, one year was over, and Guy wanted me to stay, and Jill wanted me to stay, and it was it was yeah it was dramatic for, for everyone because you know my character was a really strong element in the show yeah uh, but i was tired too you know a, a year you know i didn't know how to pace myself you know i didn't know how to pace myself i just wanted to you know le barak to this one
0: yes <laughs> 200% every night but when you do 10 shows a week for a year it's it's pretty hard
1: <laughs> but that wasn't the real reason you know i i just i didn't want my marriage to end and um It wouldn't have ended. I mean, it just would have caused a lot of stress. Mm -hmm. Anyways, um, I went back in 1990 when they went to New York. I told them I would do New York. And that's where I met Bill Irwin, uh, the Mm -hmm. clown, who was already me. He was my hero. Still is. And we ended up creating a show together. Yeah, Full Moon? Full Moon, yeah.
0: Classic. Yeah. And how was it for you to transition from a big production Cirque du Soleil like a lot of artists on stage 10 shows a week to your own show with Bill
1: well the transition was that was not a problem at all it was um, it was just really exciting to work with Bill because um, I had always wanted to work with him there was a uh, uh, a writer from the new york times who was i met in 19 in 1983 she was doing an article on street artists for the new york times and um mm-hmm. she said asked me do you know bill irwin and i said no she said oh he's the big star in new york he's a clown i said what and um somehow i got a video of his show the regard of flight and i i just went man that's the best clown in the world and you know oh. I got that guy
2: <laughs>
1: and um so we did and um we ended up creating a show together, which was, uh, yeah, that was really something.
0: You said Nouvelle Experience catapulted you in your career. And it looks that Full Moon catapulted you again to another level.
1: Yeah, another level. And, you know, I know that he and, you know, everybody were, they were disappointed that I had left. And um, in retrospect, you know, I can't look back on it and say I regret it because, you know, you make decision, decisions in your life. And, um, but I don't think I ever would have ended up meeting Bill Irwin. Who knows? Who knows?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In retrospect, I think I would have liked to stay a little bit longer with Sarah
0: even though you left the show and started working on your own project, did you stay close with Guy Liberté and Gilles Sainte-Croix over the years?
1: Yeah. You know, I know that they were really disappointed and I understand why. And, um, but you know, I was young and kind of stupid, you know, I didn't, um, I know Guy offered me, um, to be part of the team, um, offered me, you know, place as part of the creative team uh, with Franco and everybody else. And, um, you know, I never, when I think about it, I should have written him a letter and thanked him for, you know, giving me such a nice offer and um, to be part of the team. But I didn't, I just said, thought, you know, while I'll think about it, he, and I'm not even sure I, I told him, which was kind of stupid, um, but you know, you're young and you grow and you, you learn
0: yeah, um, for sure. what,
1: it, what it means to be professional and, you know, how to, you know, how to deal with people.
0: Mm-hmm. But he did offer you again, to create a show with Cirque du Soleil, right?
1: He did. And, um, you know, Gilles played a big part in that. You know, Gilles, who was really uh, set up the meeting and uh, and I met with both of them at, at Guy's house and um, I told him the kind of show I'd like to create.
0: And he agreed. And how was it for you guys to be back together, the three of you guys, after all these years?
1: It was amazing. You know, I, and I could see that, you know, in the meantime, Guy and, you know, Cirque du Soleil was, you know, really... Mega success, and uh, I'm sure Guy, you know, forgot about you know the mistakes I had made, and um, so it was like we were just starting again from you know like nothing ever happened. We're we're doing a show together, and
0: uh, and so what what did that show ended up being? Uh, a which is to this day the longest big top show running for Cirque du Soleil. Is it? It is, yeah.
1: Well, it's a great show. You know, it's timeless. And the thing is when I was creating that, first of all, I had a great team. You can't, you know, you can't really real- realize something wonderful unless you really have the right team of people around you mm-hmm. that understand your language. Um, they're doing their best to give you what you th- you need. Um, so, you know, that show It wasn't just me. It was a whole team of, you know, incredible, talented artists.
2: Mm -hmm. It
1: it happened. I had, I had the vision of what I wanted and they were there and, um, you know, they helped me
0: a lot. And did Cirque already have an idea of what kind of show they wanted you to create?
1: No, 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 no. Geese let me do what I wanted. He, he trusted me. He said, well, okay, you know, create a show.
0: It's amazing. (laughs) And they pretty much left me alone, you know, which was really cool. Then, from this point, how is the whole creative process, the whole creation? For me, the first thing I had
1: to overcome was my my terror, my fear of, oh my God, what, what, what did I get myself <laughs> into? How can I do this? Oh my God, what, did I, what am I doing? Because, I, you know, I had it. My first thought was, okay, David, what would you create if, you know, Cirque allowed you to create a show? And I thought, well, I would create something that I always wanted to create. You know, something that was me, part of me, that was really... um, I wanted to make it simple and really focus on the artists and have a simple story, but a story that you could really follow. And I wanted to have a lot of heart and soul in it and um, create something that really connected with the audience. And so that's why Mm -hmm. I, I didn't want to do a lot of high tech.
0: You know, I wanted to keep it simple. Focusing on the human... Aspect. Yes. Not so much technology.
1: That's right. Uh, sh- what I call shared humanity. Yes. So every, every decision I made for that show was, I always asked myself, will my audience understand this? Will this be clear to them? You know, Because an audience is, is looking at a show on two levels, on the conscious level and on the unconscious level. Mm-hmm. Um, what Carl Jung called the collective unconscious, that place where we all meet. Mm-hmm. You know, there are truths that will always remain truths. So I tried to always, the decisions were, is there enough heart here? Is there enough tenderness here? Is there enough darkness here? I I wanted both. I wanted to really, Mm -hmm. really appeal to their emotions and um, make sure that the artists got everything they need to share all all the talent that they had.
0: Did you pick all the artists or is it, was it a collaboration with casting? No, people? I picked,
1: I know Gilles helped me some, you know, you know, looking for artists. And, um, but I basically picked most of them. I mean, you know, Cirque, they're amazing. I mean, they had a library mm. of artists from all over the world. I mean, mm. I spent hours and hours and hours looking at so many brilliant artists. And it was, you know, at times it was really difficult to choose what I wanted, who I wanted.
0: I imagine. And what about the clowns? How does David Shiner choose clowns?
1: Well, you know, that's a whole story unto itself. I mean, that was the first time I created a clown number. And um, I had some hits with it. I had some misses, you know, I did audience participation. And uh, how do you, I mean, you look at people and think, oh, that guy's really funny. They, you know, he's funny. I mean, you look at people who you think are really funny. And um I can tell you, you know, it wasn't easy. And it's so I'll never do this again. You know, having the responsibility of this big show and parallel to that, having to create two clown numbers. It was just too much. It was yeah. too much. And um, that caused me a lot of stress.
0: You mean the, your, your creative power was too divided, like between the show itself and the clown? Yeah, part? it was just
1: too much. It was, you know, it was way too much. For example, I just created two new clown numbers for Kuza. Because, you know, we can't bring people up on stage anymore. So Cirque uh, brought me out and they only gave me three weeks. And I thought, oh my God, I'll never be able to do this. Three weeks. Oh my God. You know, and they needed to be good. I mean, you can't, you know, because FUSA was starting up again. And um,
0: and it's a serious hit for Cirque. Like, as we said, it's longest running big top show. And it's a show that's always selling, that always get great reviews. It's really...
1: You're telling me all, you're telling me all this stuff that I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, so Kuza was. um,
0: uh... The creation of the clowns, you say, was very difficult. Difficult to split your attention between the clowns and the whole show.
1: It was exhausting. It was so exhausting. And I'll never, ever do that again.
0: Was it so demanding because you have such a high level of expertise in clown that you felt that you could just put so much into the clown parts, but that in terms of times you couldn't because you had to also manage the whole show.
1: Yeah. I just, you know, it just took way too much of my time and, um, I managed to do it. Um, I had great clowns, but you know, when you're starting from scratch, you go, okay, two new clown numbers. I mean, you know, when Bill Irwin and I were creating clown numbers, it it wasn't easy. Creating a clown number is never easy. Mm. No matter how much experience you have, it's always, you know, it's a a hard job, but um, it worked. You know, it worked. Yeah.
0: It worked. How different are the two sets of acts? Like, let's say the original act that you created and the one that you just recently recreated for the new format of the show.
1: Oh, they're very different. There's no audience participation at all. They're both um, acts with, it's basically storytelling. Now it's really um, the king and his two fools. You know, his two jesters, Okay. And uh, the king is looking for his crown. In the first act, the king wants to knight someone from the audience. Okay. You know how knighting, to knight yeah, someone. Yeah, knighting, yeah. But he ends up, yeah, it's really funny. I mean, Sean, <laughs> francois and Miguel, they're extremely funny. But, you know, uh, I thought I'd never be able to do that in three weeks. I thought, hmm, oh, good luck, man. Good luck with that. <laughs> But I had been teaching at the theater school in Munich uh, for almost eight years now. And, um, and uh, the last two weeks I'm with the students, um, it's usually either 10 or 12, I create a show from scratch. Okay. And I had learned a lot by having to create a one-hour show within a period of two weeks with all of these young actors.
2: Mm. You know?
1: And it was all based on clowning and comedy and timing and rhythm and all of that. Mm-hmm. And I realized I was able to create these two numbers in three weeks because of all those years of doing those one-hour shows. Because basically, when you're creating uh, clown numbers, it's it's always about problem solving. Okay. You start with an idea and then a problem happens. Okay, how are we going to solve this problem? What do we do? And so I learned how to find
0: ideas quickly. So that really prepared you for that express creation?
1: It absolutely prepared me for these two numbers. Yeah, and the two numbers are very, very funny.
0: I'm so excited to see them. That, sound, that sounds so great. And uh, what about the whole nature of Kuza? Because it looks like when it first came out, it was like a comeback to a more traditional circus. How did you come up with that idea?
1: I don't know. It was just instinct. I, this is just what I wanted to do. You mm-hmm. know? And I wanted to try to make it timeless. So it's something that you know, would not change over time, that you could look at it in any, any, at any time. And it would feel, mm-hmm. it would still be good because it's, it's timeless and um, it's not overdone. It's, it's simple and the artistry is beautiful. The lighting is beautiful. The, the music is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Everyone that contributed to that, just immense amounts of talent. They all have mm-hmm. just immense amounts of talent.
0: Yeah. I think something that sh- strikes me with Kuza is that the human performance is so high in every. Act like, I mean, with the high wire, the wheel of death, contortion, whatever acts, the level of human performance is always incredible. And I think maybe that's what contributing to that timeless aspect, because technology can age, but someone transcending from stage, that's, that's timeless. Well, you're absolutely right about that.
1: And also, um, you have to realize that, you know, in terms of costume and music and lighting and staging it's a whole different thing because I need to integrate that into the show. I need to, what's the best way I can really, you know, bring these artists out, you know, introduce them as characters. Um, that's always really, really important. You know, the choreography, um, so that you already have a great artist, but then when you add great lighting, great costume, great choreography, um, music, it just, you know, it brings it up to a much higher level. Mm -hmm. It really showcases them in the best way possible.
0: Mm-hmm. And I want to ask you a little bit about the, the character of the trickster. Yeah, But it's really a character like among artists and performers. It's really a, a role that is very, very thought after. It's really like when in your career you get to perform the trickster, it's really an extremely meaningful thing. So I wanted to yeah, just ask you, how did this character come to life?
1: <laughs> You're telling me all this stuff I never... I didn't know. <laughs> I'm glad I'm <laughs> We have two tricksters now Because that role is so difficult to play You know, we have two tricksters now Because uh, the artists were just getting exhausted Becoming, you know, it was just too much So we have two now And um, all the tricksters We have had have been brilliant You know, I always wanted a Sort of a, a trickster I wanted like a A magical character That was both unpredictable You know, Mm -hmm. he could be dark, he could be playful, he could be sexy, he could be um, scary, Mm -hmm. Um, but he always, you know, he has to have a great sense of power in terms of his movement. And uh, it's a character, you know, it's not just dance and and acrobatics, Mm -hmm. it's also, you know, a role of, of,
0: you know, for an actor that can dance, that can do acrobatics. I mean, it's, it looks like a super hard casting to find a very strong actor with a strong acrobat and also a strong dancer. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I just wanted a character that was just, you know, uh, really powerful, that really drove the show forward. And a trickster. I saw a, a poster one. I, I, what was I doing? I was looking at, you know, as I was creating the show, I was looking at all these different posters and pictures and, um, you know, Hours and days and hours and days. And I saw this green devil with a long tail.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's a pretty known uh, poster. And I thought, oh, that's what I want. I want that guy. Yeah. Really kind of scary and sexy and weird and ooh, nasty and really edgy,
0: you know. Yeah. Edgy. And is there a part in Kusa that after so many years you are still super proud?
1: Of? Well, I'm proud of everything in the show, you know. Every every moment I'm proud of, but especially the end is beautiful. It's a very, very, a really beautiful end. Mm. Um, it's very enchanting and sad, and you know when the uh, the innocent say says goodbye to the dog and, and three clowns, and
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: the dog brings out a present for him a kite, a new kite. Mm-hmm. Because at the opening he has a kite, and it's gray and it can't fly, and at the end the dog brings out a, a beautiful, a, a colored kite and um the way that they slowly well you know the way they appear at the end it's it's amazing i mean you uh-huh. know, the sound and the lighting i mean it just you know the uh, innocent is turning he's happy and joyful and then there's like a ka 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 bam and the three uh, clowns are there and um they bow to each other and um and the dog comes out gives him this beautiful kite and then all the big wings of the bataclan, the big mm-hmm. wings of the tower slowly close and they're gone. And, and the innocent is left alone.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The kite starts to fly and um, it goes all the way to the top really high. And then it lights up and the clown laughs. You know, it is a beautiful laugh. Mm. And the lights just slowly fade out, and fade out. And when I created that, I thought, mm, the audience is going to stand up right here. I know it. And they do. Because it's so beautiful, you know, it's just, Uh. (laughs) you know, and it's so, and it also, you know, it's very symbolic, you know, Um, it's symbolic, you know, the the clown is given a gift and uh, it's a precious gift. You know, the, I guess the kite could, you know, if you want is symbolic of us all, our soul, you know, rising beauty of our soul, the beauty of something that transcends pain Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, suffering something that's uh, we all long for.
0: Yeah. I love when that, that happen when you can sense that the audience is going to stand up and he, it happens it's always the best i remember one time the um, the senior artistic director was on tour and i could feel at the end of our act the energy of the audience was really high and I, as you said you can sense like oh i think that at the end of the show tonight it's going to be a standing ovation and i went back backstage and I told the senior artistic director, I said, what's this tonight? We're going to make the audience stand up. And he was like, oh, really? Okay, go ahead. And I went in the dressing room and I told everybody, okay, for the finally dance tonight, we everyone dance your heart out. Like we have to like just shoot your energy, look at the audience. I'm sure they're going to, they're going to stand up. And everyone was kind of like, okay, okay, let's give a little extra tonight. And during the dance, everyone was like laughing and, looking at each other really with super strong intensity and, and then at the end boom the audience like all the audience stood up and everyone was just so happy and we went backstage and we told the senior artistic director say so you see you see the audience they stood up we told you it was amazing yeah that's great great feeling isn't it oh it's the best and uh, what about the name kuza? how did you find the name
1: i don't know i was looking at a lot of sanskrit words and uh KUZA was kind of like a magic box or a box containing, containing something precious. I'm not, I'm not even sure if it's exactly those worded like that, but it was something like that, KUZA.
2: Mm, yeah. yeah, I don't That's know.
0: So, the show is finally out. Many of you have been waiting for the release of Rouge and are now able to enjoy our new show. Want to know something awesome? You and your company can become part of our growth. If you want to support the show and grow your business in the same time, you can advertise here on our podcast. You can reach out to Radio Active Media, our advertising partner who can help your company grow by leveraging the reach of this show as well as many other podcasts and radio programs. The Radio Active Media team can guide you through the entire advertising process. They offer to help you book and create a tailored campaign geared towards your targeted clientele, create the ads, and even provide the analytics to make your marketing dollars go further. Simply reach out to RadioactiveMedia.com or text the word CLOWN to five eleven five eleven. Text CLOWN to five eleven five eleven, and Radioactive Media will help you team up with us. The most entertaining podcast of all things circ. Text CLOWN to 511-511 today. You may receive up to one additional text. Text STOP to opt out. And now, let's get back to the show. I saw on your website that you're teaching and that you have a, a very specific method of yes, I do. clowning. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I work a lot with, on the emotional level. You know, my big thing is uh, developing vulnerability and openness. For me, great performance is, is, is not just about ideas, it's about how you can access energy and how vulnerable you are, how, how much of your feelings that you can actually feel.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, when I teach, it's all about, you know, the clown for me lives in two worlds a world of great joy and a world of great sorrow. So he has both. And great clowning is when you're able to balance both of those, so that you can go in and out of both of those. Experiences. You know, and I think a great performance, if, you, if, you, if you're able to not only express, you know, joy, but also to express sorrow and hurt and pain, it makes you a good actor. Um, if you, you know, as an actor, uh, when they're creating roles, they have to understand all of the, the, the different emotional aspects of the character. With clowning... the the challenge is to bring the experience of great joy and the experience of great sorrow, bring both of those together. And this creates vulnerability. You know, um, for me, the essence of great performance is vulnerability, the capacity to really feel the depth of who and what you are and what your possibilities are. So my teaching is, you know, a lot about, um, facing fears, um, helping people find their creativity. Most people don't realize that they're only tapping into a very small amount of of what they have. Mm -hmm. And so I try to help them access much more of that energy. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Vulnerability is everything. The Mm -hmm. ability to actually feel your life and not think your life.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And the clown is living in these two worlds. He's balancing these two worlds together. <clears throat> that you can cry in a second, you can be angry in a second, you can be happy, you can be sad. And the the clown is all of that. Mm-hmm. He has everything. She has everything at their disposal. And that's what vulnerability is, that you can access those things instantly.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't know how to describe it. It's like laughter and tears are almost the same.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The person who's performing has to be able to enjoy not only the, the joy of it, of the character, but also enjoy the tears. Mm -hmm. To be able to be really authentic and present on stage, Mm -hmm. that means you have access to much more of your emotions and um, that you learn to feel more deeply. And that combined with learning technique. That technique is part of it, but the most important element of clowning is your feelings.
0: The stereotype of a clown is someone that is very funny on stage, but very sad off stage. Do you think there is some truth into that?
1: On one level, I can say it's just a big cliche. On another level, you know, I'm sure there are clowns that are, you know, they want to make people laugh because I guess if you want to talk about psychology, they want to make people laugh because they want to save them and make them happy and, you know, make, you know, people are suffering but in reality, they want to save themselves.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, if I can make them laugh, they'll be healed or they'll feel hmm. better. Yeah, that, that's true. That's true. But
0: I thought about that because once you find that duality in clowning, is it something that you also discover in yourself as a person?
1: You do. But you know, I always tell my students, you need to leave your personal life at home. Don't mix up your personal life with your personal life with your art. Um, don't go on stage so that you can constantly get attention because when you don't, when you don't have a good night, a good show, you're angry, you're sad, you know, you think you're awful, you know, you need to make two need to separate both that this is the, the, the actor clown. This is my performance. This is my, I'm an artist and this is my private life. Mm
2: -hmm. There
1: needs to be a very clear separation between the two Mm -hmm. from my, my opinion. And um, we should always You know, learn that um, we should never become addicted to the laughter or wanting to be seen constantly, Mm. um, because that's that's a trap. Um, We have to be able to give a great performance, whether it's good that night or whether it's bad that night, and still feel okay with it. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of artists, you know, they become addicted to this. That applause, yeah. You know, they need to see me. They need to feel how great I am. They need to show me how great I am. And then they become addicted to it. So in that sense, they haven't separated their personal life from their um, artistic life.
0: Is that something you discovered in yourself, in your career? Like you discover like, Oh, I need, I'm becoming addicted to this. I need to separate my private life. Yes, my-
1: I'll give you a perfect example. When we were on Broadway, I mean, you know, we had full houses almost every night. We, Mm -hmm. We're a big hit in New York. You know, we won the Tony Award, uh, Autocritic Circle Award, the Drama Desk Award. I mean, it was just, you know, it was pretty amazing. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: But every night after the first act, when we begin the second act, I'd come out on stage and I'd look for for one empty seat. And when I saw that empty seat, I thought to myself, aha, that person left because they know the truth about me. I have no talent. I don't. Deserved to be on stage. It's just, I don't know why people are even coming to watch me. And I didn't even bother to think, well, maybe it was a doctor who had an emergency or someone was still in the bathroom. But I was unable to see the 1,499 people who stayed.
0: And you were searching for that seat. You were searching for for it. It wasn't even something you were seeing. You were like...
1: Looking for it. Looking for it. You know? And that's when I realized I had a problem. You know? Not being able to see the 1,499 people who stayed, but only being focused on the one person who left.
2: Hmm.
1: I realized, oh, that's a problem.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, the ability to you know, believe in yourself and trust yourself and uh, the ability to learn how to, to accept that people are there to see you. Mm-hmm. That it doesn't become an addiction. You do it because you enjoy it. Mm-hmm. It's like I needed everybody to be there. If one person left, that was that meant that I, I you know, it, I wasn't good enough. You see what I mean?
2: Yeah. So it,
1: it became it. Be, it was it was like an addiction. It was uh, I needed constant one thousand five hundred people every night. You know, two hundred percent. And you know, and at some point I realized I have to change. I have to learn to do it a different way.
0: After you went through that realization, going through that self-work of being more acceptant with yourself and like more kind to yourself, did you find more joy into performing?
1: Yes, because it didn't matter anymore. If people left, you know, I wasn't dependent on them. You know, it was just me doing the best that I could. And that was enough. That's enough hmm. to do my best.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: you know and it's just it allowed me to have much more energy it allowed me to be much more relaxed on stage it just freed me up in so many ways Mm. i wasn't i wasn't coming from a point of desperation mommy Mm -hmm. daddy mommy daddy look at me and unfortunately a lot of artists and you know actors and whatnot that's what it's about mommy daddy look at me
2: yeah
1: and you know that's something that it's a trap and you know i try to help my students you know you know go beyond that they're not all like that. I mean, they're all really smart kids. Um, but to be able to, you know, trust yourself and that when you're on stage, you are enough. Mm-hmm. Whether it is five people in the audience or 10 people or thousand people, you will always be enough that mm-hmm. you are okay the way you are and you're doing your best. And that's all mm-hmm. you can do mm-hmm.
0: and learn, never stop learning. Do you think it's, uh, the circus, Life is difficult and especially to be a clown because mm-hmm. your act has to stay more or less the same performances after. well performances. you know that's something
1: I've been trying to fight for you know at Cirque you know this whole thing I mean every normally an acrobatic number um, or, or any other number that's not a clowning number they have a fixed time if they do the act it's just the way it is mm-hmm. you know there's no improvisation they do the act and it's done and with clowning they're always doing you got five minutes You got five minutes. Oh, you went over one minute. That drives me crazy. It drives me absolutely crazy because you can't work that way with clowns. And the clowns hate it. They absolutely hate it because Mm -hmm. they need to freedom. I mean, each each night it's different when you're a clown. You know, you're going to improvise something Mm -hmm. and you're going to get a big laugh. You're going to try a different idea. And the next night it's going to be a bigger laugh. And that's how you make the number really brilliant. But, Mm -hmm. you know, these things. You know, this, this rule is just absolutely, from my, my point of view, stupid. Get rid of it. Leave the clowns the hell alone. You know, I don't want them to be out there doing 10 or 15 minutes. But my God, you know, it's got to be five minutes or it's got to be six minutes and not one second over. That is
0: ridiculous. What would be your the ideal setup for a clown in a show?
1: Well, you know, it's it's hard to say, mm-hmm. you know, or or at least give them the opportunity if they're gonna they find a brilliant idea and they want to try it out and the thing's gonna go over a minute, let them do it. But the poor clowns mm-hmm. come back and you know, the artistic director there is saying, "Hey guys, you're over, you're over well, half a minute, you're over a minute," and you just, I mean, if I was in the show, I would just, I, I would just I wouldn't be able to do it. I'd say, no, I said, <laughs> "No, you know, come on, give me a break,
0: man." But what you're saying about the clown in the show, it's true that it's very difficult. And clowns, they are the first one to be criticized in a show because comedy is such a subjective thing. And
1: look, I'm sorry, but you can't have people telling clowns what to do who don't know anything about what clowning is or understand, Mm. you know, it's like, you get the feeling like, oh, yeah, we got the clowns. Okay, but, you know, throw the clowns out, you know. Oh yeah, we're doing. We got to rehearse everything. Oh yeah, we forgot the clowns. Yeah, okay, you guys can go and rehearse now. Um, oh, that's too long. No, you got to cut it. Okay. It's like, no, guys, need them <laughs> alone or bring in somebody that can help them. You know, they need help.
0: Yeah. Do, do you feel that when you went back to recreate the acts with Kuza that the clowns on the show they were they were like, oh, finally someone who understands. Us and who can really work the craft with us?
1: Oh, well, the three guys that, you know, are with Cousin now. Mm. Yeah, we had a lot of fun doing it. But, you know, um, Miguel was with Michael J. Garner and Gordon White, and um, they were a really good trio. Gordon um, White has been with the show since the beginning. He and Michael and Miguel were really, really strong in the show, you know, before um, Corona hit. And smart. I mean, Michael and Gordon and Miguel, uh, yeah. in terms of timing and creating new ideas and, completely, and being completely
0: out of their minds. <laughs> is there a style of clown that you prefer? What makes me laugh is when I
1: see a, 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 a clown that has uh, no limits. They're just completely insane. Yeah. And, you know, it's unexpected. Everything you do is unexpected. You know, you you say to yourself, I can't believe she did that or he did that. They're always filled with surprises. Um, You know, when I was clowning, for me, that's how I like to clown. Just, you know, crazy. Absolutely no limits. Just go crazy.
0: And do you think you can do this now in Cirque to have clowns with no limits?
1: Well, it depends, you know, you have to say, well, what does that mean? Really? No limits. You know, um, you're <laughs> definitely going to have a time limit. But, um, you know, it depends on how the act is built and structured. A lot of things that that go into an act that def- will define whether it's going to be completely, you know, absolutely insane. I mean, I don't know it's difficult to say. I mean, it is crazy. I don't know what crazy is, you know. I just like when I see a funny clown, I say to myself that guy's an idiot. What an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> or when I'm teaching my students, that's a great compliment. I just I say, "Man, you are such an idiot." Such an idiot. <laughs> and it's just dude, that's what I want. You be a complete <laughs> idiot, you know? Don't have any limits. Don't, you know, don't don't put any brakes on what you're doing.
2: Mm-hmm. Go
1: as far as you can. And then you can start to, you know, see where you need to stop or where you can. Oh, okay. I can go that far. And it works up to that point. I mean, you just can't go absolutely out of your mind. You got to have some kind of structure.
0: Mm -hmm. I have one last question for you. Yeah. If tomorrow aliens would land on earth, how would you explain Cirque du Soleil to them? ecstatic joy mm, that's a brilliant answer David thank you so much for your time thank you very much oh, it was a Pleasure. great questions and thank you for your sharing your wisdom, <laughs> wisdom. It's, it's been amazing Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I wish you good luck and a big mail for all your coming project I'll be looking forward to see everything thanks. thank thanks. you very much thanks. it was really fun to interview you thanks so much take care You know, after our talk, I really thought, this gentleman is exactly what I picture in my mind when I think about a creative genius. All fire and passion. It must be a trip to work with him. Well, I hope you enjoyed this chat as much as I did. As always, if you like the show, please subscribe, leave us a good review, comments, and talk to your friends about us. It really helps. Send your recorded audio questions on our Instagram at Podcasts for our upcoming Q&A episode. It was my pleasure. And until next week, as we say in the circus, see you down the road.